Go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. One of the things no one really prepared me for after I... Check one, two. Ooh, that one is on. You can hear me now. Good. Thank you guys for your uh, patience in that. One of the things uh, that no one really prepared me for after I got married was marriage does this thing where it reveals the weirdness of your family that you never realized was weird. Um, and I can't really explain that any better than just like, you, once you get married, you'll know if you're not married. And if you are married, you already understand this. Uh, Haley and I had just gotten back from our honeymoon. It was the first week after our honeymoon, and we were going to go grocery shopping together. And so we had made a list on over the, all the meals we were going to prepare. And one of my favorite meals is uh, vegetable soup with grilled cheese sandwiches. Uh, just, it's a great meal. You can't go wrong with it. So we're going through. I'm pushing the, the buggy. Uh, and already Haley would tell me, don't call it a buggy. That's so weird. Call it a cart. But I'm from the South, and we call it a buggy. So that's just what, what you do. And so we're, we're pushing, I'm pushing the buggy, and she stops me, and she goes, hey, will you grab some cheese for grilled cheese? So I go over to the cheese section, and I grab a package of Kraft Singles cheese. Because everyone knows that's what you use to make grilled cheese with. It's really easy. You peel it, you put the cheese on it. And I go to put that in the buggy, and she goes, ooh, don't get that. As if there's something wrong with the way I eat my grilled cheese. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to get? And she tells me that I should go get the block cheese. And, like, my brain has this stutter point at this because... Growing up, my entire childhood, we didn't call it block cheese. This is just going to show you how redneck I really am from Tennessee. We, we called it fancy cheese. Do you guys ever call that fancy cheese? And fancy cheese was only for special occasions and guests. That was the only time we got fancy cheese. Other than that, it was just Kraft Singles. And I said, you can't make grilled cheese out of fancy cheese. You have to use Kraft Singles. And she's like, I'm about to blow your mind and made the best grilled cheese that night I've, I've ever had. But that was the point in my life that I realized, wow, the things that I thought were normal were kind of weird. You guys ever had these, these types of happenings for you? Because life has this thing where life around us tends to normalize, and then we have the tendency with it to then miss the oddity of those norms. So if you've ever, you know, been sitting at a, for some reason I always like envision this at a Hardee's, and you meet someone with like a different English accent, complete with all its sayings, and it just totally catches you off guard. The person there is talking to his friend. He's like, the other day, little Riri was putting up one of them little skits for her mommy and daddy. And she pretended to be her mommy singing that song about a brick house. And her daddy thought it was cooler than socks on a rooster, but her mama was madder than a wet hen. I reckon she don't like that song too much. You're like, what? What? What just happened? But it's not like that person woke up that morning and thought, I'm going to put on a really weird accent to uh, trick people today. Like to that person, that's just how they talk. That's just normal. See, that those things in our life that are weird or odd, it's not that they're wrong. It's just that no one else is really all that used to it. And, and I think sometimes... This, this happens to us as Christians when we approach the Bible, especially when we approach these Bible stories that we, we know well. And I think Matthew 4 is a prime example of that. So just right off the start, I, I start there so I can go here. Please, as best as you can with me today, let's, let's not pretend that on the surface level this is just a normal story. Let's, let's not pretend that it's just like a daily basis that Satan's bouncing around trying to get people to turn rocks into bread 
uh, that Satan's tempting people to base jump off of tall buildings. That's not normal. This is an odd story. So, so let it be odd. Let it be weird. Because I think when you approach it that way, it helps to start making sense of the story a little bit more intentionally. Rather than just diving in and assuming it to be normal, stand back. Let, let it be weird a little bit. And we'll see if we can make sense from Matthew chapter 4. So by the way, if you have, if you have your bulletins, again, I'm doing the exact same thing I did last week where uh, we're going to break it down in three parts because Matthew does the exact same thing he did in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's going to tell three stories and he's going to kind of link all of these stories together into one big story through Old Testament texts as the transition points. And so I want to look at each one of these stories individually, explore all that, see what's going on, and then dial it all in at the very end to see what that means for us today. So Again, it's going to feel a little bit like a tilt-a-whirl. We're going to be back and forth, in and out. All, all of those things are coming with this. Bear with me. If you notice yourself zoning out, as I gave the same spiel last week, just try your best to hold, and then at the end, I'll dial you back in, and we'll see if we can make sense of this really weird, odd story. So first things first. Number one thing I need you to do as we jump into this, get the cartoon render out of your head. And most of you know exactly what I mean by that when you know the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Because what we do is we hyper-characterize this figure we call Satan or, or the devil. And those characterizations that we give him aren't all that helpful. So, so don't picture Jesus with some half-goat man with a pitchfork and a goatee and a tail. That's not biblical. That's modern art, old art. That's not Satan. So just... Try your best to just, I guess, not envision anything. Just the embodiment of evil, whatever that looks like to you, not goat man with a, with a pitchfork. Let me jump into the text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it's also written, don't test the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels began to serve him. So what's going on? This is a weird story. You got some embodiment of evil going toe-to-toe -to -toe against the claimed Messiah. And he's trying to get him to turn rocks into bread and to jump off a temple complex. And I don't know about you, but often the things that I think Satan tempts me with are kind of non sequitur to those things. They don't really follow all that well. There's never been a time in my life that I've looked down at rocks and thought, I really wish I could turn these to bread right now, but God told me not to do that. How do we connect all of this to to us. And to open all of that up, I have to start right here in verse 1 and do, I'm not going to force you to do Greek, but I want to talk a little bit about the Greek. Then Jesus was led up to the, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by 
the devil. Almost every modern version uses this word tempted here, but I'm curious, uh, for any of you that have other versions of the Bible that you're reading, does anyone have the word test in, in your Bible? It's a pretty long shot. I didn't think there would be, but there are a few other translations that use the word test. Here, here's the interesting thing. In Matthew 16, and really throughout the Gospels, there's this pattern of a story where the Pharisees will come to Jesus, and then they will put him to the test. And it's actually the exact same word in Greek for when the Pharisees test Jesus as it is when Satan tempts Jesus. And so there's a little bit of a debate on whether this word should be translated tempt or whether it should be translated test. And really it conveys a similar thing, but, but I want you to try to approach it with the lens of test just because I think it helps you connect back to the Old Testament. Because what is, what is temptation? Temptation tends to be a very negative connotation word. It's this kind of idea of taking someone that's up on the high road and trying to pull them down to, to the low road when the term test is a little bit more broad. It, it opens up the door a little bit more. If temptation is pulling someone from a high road to a low road, testing is just kind of like an attempt to determine which road they're even on in the first place. It's, it's an attempt to prove the reality of a person or to prove the truth about them. And I know for you college students, like talking about tests is like PTSD inducing and you don't want to think about that right now, but it is coming. So let, let's go there. When your professor gives you a test, right? It's, it's not because they want to take your grade from up here and just yank it down here as much as you may feel that that's what they're trying to do. That's not the intention of the test, right? The, the test is to see if you can prove the truth of what you learned, that you really did study the material, you really did learn the method, you really did learn the, the knowledge, rather than just like stay up late and play video games on it. Now I mention all of this because I think if we're not careful, what we do is we take this story in Matthew 4 and we limit it to just the, this story of Jesus, innocent man being tempted by the devil, trying to make him not innocent man any longer. And that's there and that's true. But we don't really stop to consider the implications for what this story means about the identity of Jesus. The proof that Matthew's trying to give you for saying this is really who I am claiming Jesus to be. Because as much as this story is about Jesus overcoming temptation, it's also a story about Jesus proving the truth of his messiahship by undergoing and passing the test. Which if you hold to that idea will start connecting you back to the Old Testament in ways you may not have realized before. So, understand this is the idea. Yes, Jesus is being tempted by the devil, but he's also going into this test to prove that who he claims to be is really, truly his identity. That he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Savior. Because this is the claim Matthew has been coming up until this, making up until this point. Two prominent characters. The first one is Jesus. So what has Matthew told us about Jesus in the first three chapters of the book? Well, he's the son of David, chapter 1, verse 1, son of Abraham. So he's the son of David, born king of the Jews. He's the son of Abraham, born the fulfillment of the covenant promise. He is named Jesus, which literally means God saves because he has come to save Israel from their sin. He would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with man. He is the king worshiped by foreign rulers from a foreign land. All of this is at play. And if you go to chapter three, at the very end of chapter three, Jesus is baptized 
And a voice comes from heaven in verse 17. God the Father opens up the heavens and speaks and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. you got to remember, when Matthew's writing this, he's not ending chapter 3 there so he can start chapter 4 in the next point. Matthew's just writing a story. The verse numbers, the chapter numbers, those are all inserted in later. So, so hold on to that because it's going to come back up right again in chapter 4. Here's my point in all of this. Matthew has laid out claims into who Jesus is, and now Jesus is about to go toe-to-toe with this other character we call the devil, Satan. And as easy as it is to pinpoint the character and person of Jesus, it is much harder to pinpoint the character and details of this character we call Satan. There's some pieces of connecting Hebrew words from serpent to angel in Isaiah 6. And there's some attempts at creating some form of clear doctrine of Satan being a fallen angel. But, but if I was just honest, all of that stuff is, is heavily interpreted. And it's not meaning it's bad. It's not even meaning it's wrong. It's just meaning the Bible is nowhere near as clear on that as it is on the person and character and purpose of Jesus. Rather, right from the start... In chapter 3 of Genesis, we find that there is some figure, some created being within creation that has set itself against God and his will and his goodness. And from page 3 onward, this embodiment of evil has been trying to drag God's good creation back into brokenness and chaos with every passing generation. There's a multitude of titles this figure holds. Sometimes we call him Satan. It's not a name. It's a title. It just means the adversary. It's a Hebrew word for accuser or adversary. Sometimes we call him the devil, which is also not a name. It's a title meaning the slanderer. So the devil, Diablos, is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Satan. So that's really all that's playing there. We call him the father of lies, the evil one. All of this is at play. And the Bible seems relatively uninterested and trying to explain where this being comes from exactly, and is far more intent on explaining what God is doing about him wreaking havoc on his world. The Bible wants to tell us what is God doing about this character named, or we called, we call Satan. So now we have the Messiah. This Messiah is about to go toe to toe with the embodiment of evil himself. And the question that should be lingering on everyone's mind is, will Jesus fail like every other human before him? Or will Jesus triumph proving his own identity? Now, you probably know the end of the story. Spoiler alert, Jesus triumphs. But what's going on with all of this? Let's jump into this. Part one. What I want to do as I break these down is to look at three separate things in each of these stories. First, I want to look at what is Satan's tactic as he tries to tempt Jesus. What what is the temptation? Not just like turn rocks into bread, but what's under the heart of the temptation? What's the sin that Satan is trying to convince Jesus to commit? And then what is Jesus' response to this? So if you look right at the start in verse, uh, verse 3, Satan begins, the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God. Now, if you've been reading Matthew up until this point and haven't just stopped at chapter 3 because that's what your Bible reading plan told you to do, there's been just a really big claim about who this person named Jesus is coming straight from God the Father. Who is Matthew claiming Jesus to be? The Son of God. God himself, the Father, speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The claim 
that Matthew is making is Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And what is Satan's first opening words? If you are the Son of God. Satan's first thing he wants to do, his first tactic, is to try to get Jesus to question his identity. To make Jesus question who he really is. Now, it's a good point right here, just to to step back a little bit and point out that Jesus is fully human. We've been really good over the last few decades at at pushing the divinity of Christ, which is true. Jesus is 100% God. But the Bible also portrays Jesus as 100% man, meaning Jesus experiences the full gambit of the human experience. He feels the full gambit of human emotions. He never sins, but there is absolutely evidence in Jesus' life of anxiety when he's in the garden before the cross. Not anxiety that leads him to sin, but anxiety that is leading him to sweat blood and say, God, if there's any other way. There's evidence of Jesus being angry in the temple when he runs out the temple booths and money collectors. So it's easy for us to look at this story and say, well, well, of course Jesus overcomes temptation. I mean, he's God in the flesh. He's, he's the Messiah. Don't forget, he's also human. And when does he as the Messiah find out he's the Messiah? I mean, surely Mary and Joseph tell him from a child, Jesus, you have a story unlike any other. And they walk him through that. Surely there's a lot of power in the spoken word of the Father coming over him as he's being baptized. But don't forget, Luke tells us Jesus grows in stature and knowledge. Jesus had to learn things like a human has to learn things. There had to be points in Jesus' life that it would have been easy to question that identity. And Jesus had to come back, not to his own emotion, but to the authority that God has spoken over him, that the Father speaks over him. So Satan, in his own arrogance, believes that he can convince Jesus otherwise. So he approaches him. Jesus, if you're the Son of God. Surely the Son of God wouldn't be out in the middle of nowhere starving to death. I mean, if you are the Son of God, and then he tells him, turn these rocks into bread. Now, how on earth is that a temptation? Is there like an Old Testament text that's like, thou must not turneth rock into thy bread. Rocks shall beeth rocks, bread shall remaineth bread. Like, that's a rule from God? No, so what's, what's the problem here? And to identify that, we actually need to first look at Jesus' response just in text. So Jesus goes in and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, it's written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now again, we talked about this last week. But anytime you see an Old Testament text referenced in the New Testament, most of the time that's not just taking you to a few short words or phrases. It's inviting you back to consider the passage in which it's written, the context, what's going on. So Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is talking to the Israelites after wandering in the desert for 40 years. And so Moses is going to come to them, and he tells them this. Jesus' phrase is a small part of this. It says, carefully follow every command I'm giving you. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and you may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your ancestors. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. 
He humbled you by letting you go hungry, and then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus seems to be really thinking about how his story is paralleling this story. That there's some sort of tie-in to go back and consider what's the similarities between Jesus and Israel. And if you've been paying attention, and if you know your Old Testament, you might have already been picking up on this because Matthew has been paralleling these stories as well. Because he portrays Jesus as going into and coming out of Egypt. If you go back to the Exodus story, what's the main point of the Exodus story? Israel has come into enslavement in Egypt, and then God is going to rescue them out of Egypt. And after coming out of Egypt, right, Jesus grows up and then he is baptized in the baptismal waters. Well, Israel, coming out of Egypt, is also passed through the Red Sea of waters before they then go into, for Jesus, it's 40 days in the wilderness. For Israel, it's 40 years in the wilderness. So Jesus, spending 40 days in the wilderness, is where he is tested. Israel, spending 40 years in the wilderness, is where they are tested. So, so really, this is the point where the stories start to diverge paths a little bit, where the parallels begin to stop, because... When Israel is put to the test, what's the truth that is revealed about them? Are they, well, I guess I should ask this. When they're put to the test, do they pass or fail? They, they fail. They don't hold up to who God wants them to be. They get into the wilderness, and rather than turning to God and trusting him, they cry out. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to demand God give them what they want. Rather than trusting in God's provision, they demand their own way. And welcome to what Satan has done since Genesis chapter 3. To do everything he can to convince humanity that God's word and God's truth and God's provision can't really be trusted. Instead, humans should take matters into their own hands and care and fend for themselves. And time and time again, humanity has failed that test. So the temptation that Satan is presenting to Jesus, it's not just, hey, turn rocks into bread, but it's, oh, you're the son of God and you're hungry. You should just go ahead and take matters into your own hand. You deal with this problem yourself. You don't need God's help in dealing with this, Jesus. You're the son of God. You can do it right here, right now. Take matters into your own hands. It's not some mystical problem with Jesus turning rocks to bread. It's about Jesus taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting the Father. And what's Jesus' response? He goes back, he quotes from that story in Deuteronomy 8, and he says, hey, in this story, it reminds me that actually man doesn't live on bread alone, but on the truth spoken by God, the word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus' response is that he entrusts himself entirely to the Father, knowing that his every need is defined by and cared for by the Father. He recalls Israel's problem, and then he stands strong where they fail. For Jesus, his love and reliance is on the Father. My life, according to Jesus, is not sustained by having my needs attended to. It's sustained by the purpose and identity the Father has spoken over me. See, Jesus sees his life entirely belonging to the Father. Therefore, he doesn't have to make, take matters into his own hands. He can simply trust God's provision. Then we get to part two, story number two in the text. So again, 
devil's tactic. He looks to him, takes him to uh, the holy city, has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God. So same, same tactic, number one, right from the top. Get Jesus to question his identity. And then Satan's going to add a new tactic to this one. It's not just, here's the temptation, but Satan goes back and says, okay, Jesus, you want to play the Bible game and quote some scriptures? I got one for you. And Satan quotes from Psalm 91. He will give his angels concerning you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Can you think of another time when Satan uh, tries to tempt people by using God's own words and then twisting them up? Oh, yeah, Genesis 3. Did God really say not to eat of that tree? Satan is good at knowing the very truth God commands and then trying to distract or dissuade or twist that truth just ever so slightly. So he uses a similar tactic. So what's the temptation? What's the temptation with having Jesus jump off the roof of the temple, the, the pinnacle of the temple? And I was thinking about that, and I think the best way I, I can put it is the temptation is something along the lines of this. Hey, hey, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, we know the Bible says he'll protect you. We, we know that's what the psalm says, and he has to protect you. So why don't you just go ahead and jump off, and you'll prove to me and yourself and everybody once and for all that, that you really are who you claim to be, the Son of God. Why don't you just go ahead and prove the Father's love and provision for you? You're saying that you're going to rely on that. Why don't you just go ahead and prove it right here and right now? Satan seems to be telling Jesus that Jesus can prove God's love. So how does Jesus respond? He responds this time from Deuteronomy 6, same story from Deuteronomy 8. And he just writes out, hey, don't test the Lord your God. No, Satan, I'm not going to try to make God prove his love for me. Once again, we're connected back to Israel. So again, whirlwind here, but we're connected back to Israel in the wilderness. And over and over again, they keep wanting God to prove his love for them. You know, as if 10 plagues of Egypt and then rescuing them out of slavery through the Red Sea split in half, as if that wasn't evidence enough of God's love for them. Over and over again, they keep wanting God to prove himself more. They, they want God in their service rather than God or rather than they in God's service. But that's not how Jesus sees his relationship. No, in, instead, Jesus trusts the Father's love and doesn't need to test it. The, the proof of God's love for Jesus has already been displayed throughout eternity. That as the second one of the Trinity, Jesus has existed in eternity with the love of the Father being poured out on him. Jesus has no need to have God prove his love as if God is some sort of magic genie that can just be whisked from the lamp at our command. It doesn't have to be proved. And I, I would just draw that really quickly to, to our day, and I would just remind you, God's love has already been proved. God's love for you is not proved in healing that disease. His love is not proved in overcoming that situation, that trial. It's not proved in letting you make a good grade on your test. If God grants those, then wonderful. But God's love is proved at the cross. That's where his love is once and for all declared to the world that God so loved the world, he sent his only son. That is the love God has demonstrated to us. There is no need to prove that love any further. It has been displayed. Let's go on for time's sake to, to section three here. So this time, if you'll look, Satan doesn't actually start it the same way. This time he says, I will give you these things. So 
Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he said, I will give you these things if you fall down and worship me. So questioning Jesus' identity doesn't work. Let's try a different tactic here. So what's the tactic this time? And I think we've got to do a little bit of interpretation stuff here. But who has Matthew claimed Jesus to be up until this point? We've talked about a whole list of things, but one of the biggest is that Matthew has claimed Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. So what does a king need in order to be a king? A kingdom. What most kings have is, is a kingdom. And so Satan, giving nod now to the identity of the Messiah, says, Okay, Messiah, son of God, if you are the king, surely a king should have power and authority over kingdoms. And Satan begins to show Jesus all the kingdoms that he has power and authority over. And I think the temptation is this, Jesus, if it is your destiny to rule over the world and creation, I can give you that right now. We can skip all this other nonsense and all the rest of your life. If you just bow down and worship me, I can fulfill your destiny right here, right now. I can give you exactly what you want. I can give you exactly what, what Satan thinks he, he needs. There's so much to be broken down from this because Satan is implying that he is in control of the power structures of our world. And I don't mean that in some like conspiracy, see, I told you lizard people run the world. That's, that's not the claim at all. But, but I do mean that in Satan's means of destruction and oppression and corruption hold great influence over the power structures of our world. And if you need to see that, I, I would just say, like, take, take a history class and just follow through how almost every nation has gained power and influence over this world. And most of the time you'll find it's just systems built upon strong conquering the weak. It's the expendability of the lesser to fuel the desires of the greater. And I mean that in the full spectrum of it. I, I mean that in the lesser employee that has to work 60 hours a week to make ends meet but never gets to see his three children. And I also mean that in the lesser infant still in her mother's womb, who her mother says, this is a really big inconvenience for my life. See, Satan believes that he has sway and influence and the rights to and ownership of all of these power dynamics where the ones in power get to oppress the ones not in power and that is overseen by the presence of evil himself. And so Satan takes all of this and he says, hey Jesus, I actually run this world and I can give you any and all of it, so-called king, if you would just bow down and worship me. That's the temptation from Satan. Hey, if you would trust me, then rather trusting the Father, I can go ahead and give you the promise of security. I can go ahead and fulfill your destiny. And then so Jesus responds and his response this time is twofold. Number one, he starts out with, get away from me, Satan. And then again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So overall, Jesus' response is, I only trust the Father. I only trust his ways. And even when it leaves me in the desert, hungry and suffering, I still trust his way over yours. I trust the Father at all costs. So where Adam and Eve fail, Jesus overcomes. 
where Israel fails the test, Jesus passes the test. And the truth of Jesus is revealed. He is, in fact, who Matthew has claimed him to be. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the Son of God come to ransom and rescue the world. His identity is proven true. But but what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that who he says he is is true? I think to answer that question, I'll take you back to his first phrase there. And Jesus told him, go away, Satan. Any of you have in your Bibles uh, the classic, get behind me, Satan? Ever heard that phrase before? I think he says if you've been in church for a while, you have heard that phrase before. Now, if you were just reading Matthew for the first time, you probably wouldn't pick up on this. But if you jump all the way over to Matthew chapter 16, there's this story in Matthew 16 where Jesus is talking with his disciples, and I'll just kind of give you a paraphrased version of it, but he's talking to his disciples, and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? What's my identity? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're a prophet, and some say you're John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes in and says, okay, but but who do you say that I am? You know this. What is my identity? And, And Peter comes to him, and he just gives the right answer. You are the Messiah, the ruler the anointed king. That's what Messiah means, just the anointed one. Jesus commends him. And then Jesus goes on to explain that what this means for him is that he actually will die. That as the Messiah, he is destined to go and die on the cross and then resurrect three days later. And Peter just lays into him at this point. He rebukes Jesus, the text says, and he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, no, that's not what Messiahs do. Messiahs don't die. The superhero doesn't die, Jesus. You conquer, you win, you defeat the enemy. And Jesus, seeing this, responds to Peter by saying what? Get behind me, Satan. Do you understand it's the same temptation? Jesus, you don't get authority by dying. You get authority by doing whatever it is Satan wants you to do. You get authority by power grabs. You get authority by by greater oppressing the smaller. You get authority by building an army and going out and conquering. And Jesus says, no, that's the way the enemy gets power. That's not the way I get power. Get behind me, Satan. And it's at this point, really throughout the whole gospel, that we begin to find that Jesus is fully human, but he is a totally different kind of human. A human that is all about self-giving love, where humanity for eternity has been all about trying to get things and turn it inwards on ourselves because we feel we are the most important and we need our needs to be met first. Jesus takes it and puts it outward for the world to love them. And how does Jesus, full of self-giving love, conquer? How does he gain power and authority? Because, well, he gets inaugurated as king. But he's not inaugurated to a throne. He's inaugurated to a cross, held up high so that people may see him. And he's not inaugurated with a crown of gold and jewels. He's inaugurated with the crown of thorns on his head. Because Jesus' purpose was not just to come and reign and conquer over the nations themselves. No, the Bible sees something far more drastic and evil that runs this world. Jesus has come to reign over and conquer sin and death and Satan, freeing humanity once and for all to follow him and to experience what it means to live in this new type of humanity. 
where the last become the most, the least become the greatest because he flips the world upside down. This is exactly what he's about to go into on the Sermon on the Mount when he starts into blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the humble. Jesus is just going completely against the way the world works and he's saying there's a new way to be human and I'm the example of it. And then he dies. And then he comes back having conquered the unconquerable. What does all this mean for us? Why, why, why does this matter? And here's where we'll wrap up just to kind of fill in that last box and put some things together. But why does Matthew include this story? I think for sure Matthew wants to prove to us that Jesus is who he claims Jesus to be. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is all of that stuff. But so often what we do is we read this story and we just kind of take it as a prescriptive quick text about how you can overcome temptation. So, all right, guys, we're going to look at how Jesus overcomes temptation. You need to memorize Scripture. If you memorize Scripture, it'll overcome temptation. And that's true. That's good. I'm not saying that's a bad interpretation of the text. It's not a bad application of the text. But I think that just touches the surface when Matthew's trying to get into something deeper here. Because here's the deal. All throughout this year, we're going to be focusing on what does it look like as we intentionally look more and live more and more like Jesus. And I think here's the point Matthew wants you to understand. Hey, if you're willing to take on this lifestyle, if you want to take on this identity of being a Christ follower, you just need to know there is an enemy out there. And that enemy will do everything he can to challenge that identity. Your identity will be challenged. Your identity is going to be challenged. There are so many truths and promises spoken from God the Father over you. You are a son of the King. You are a daughter of the King. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are made righteous through the righteousness of Christ. But the enemy will come to you over and over again and say, would a daughter of the King really act like that? If you are the daughter of the King, surely that's not what you would have done last night. If you really are a chosen, forgiven one of Jesus I don't, I don't think you would be in this situation. Surely that's not what God, your loving king and father, would have in store for you. And what Satan's trying to do is to convince you that rather than trust God, you can just take matters into your own hands. Hey, you go solve these problems. And I'm just telling you, every single time humanity has tried to take matters into our own hands, we have failed over and over and over again. Your identity will be challenged but if you want to intentionally live like Jesus this year, it means you must trust God's reality. You must trust God's reality. That what the Father says is true. And that no matter what that voice says in your head, no matter what that, that speaking of the enemy comes to you and accuses you of and tries to slander you of, that you can come and rest knowing that your identity is not defined in your action or who you think you are or what your past has been, but your identity is defined in what the Father says about you. And that gives you power to say, get behind me, Satan. So we're going to have a time just of reflection and singing and worship again. And I just want to give you the chance to think about where is your identity? Maybe your identity's never been placed in Christ before. Maybe you've never once experienced what it means to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And now's the time to do that. I, I would love to have you come experience that. I'll be right up here. I, I would love to pray with you about it. But if you have that identity and you're ready this year to say, I want to be more like Jesus, are you prepared for what to do when the enemy comes? Because he's going to challenge that identity.
Are you prepared to hold to the truth of the Savior and the King? Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are who you say you are. And I pray that you would give us the chance to just over and over again prove your realities. When we face the test, that your goodness and love would shine through in ways we never even imagined. So God, we pray as Jesus taught us to, don't deliver us into temptation, but when you do, deliver us from the evil one. Let us rest in that, in your goodness. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.